On today's episode, I am joined by Washington, D.C.'s former chief of homicide who worked as a federal prosecutor for 24 years. He goes into detail about the patterns and psychological motivations of the murderers he put behind bars, the dangerous process of flipping witnesses, and whether or not enough money and power can be used by the ruling class to purchase their way out of facing justice. You're going to want to saddle up for this one, guys. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Glenn Kirshner, and this is Uncovering the Truth. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, my pleasure, Dash. Let's just get right into it. You've done something that not a whole lot of people have got to experience, for better or worse. You have stared into the eyes of evil, and you've read what I've read. You've prosecuted over 50 murder cases. And I'm just curious, you know, throughout your time at the, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, was there a pattern or a psychological motivation that you noticed that could cause someone to commit the heinous act of murder? Or is this just an inexplicable evil that there, there's no explanation? Yeah, no, that's a fair question. Um, and a lot of people, I, I think, want to believe that most of the folk who take the life of a fellow human being are evil. Uh, and I think Dateline reinforces that. That's why people watch. Um, I can tell you what my experience was. Uh, I was a, a federal prosecutor for 30 years, started out as an Army JAG prosecutor, then transitioned to the Department of Justice and specifically the DC US Attorney's Office. Um, I, I really was drawn to the homicide practice because in my view, the mother of all crimes is murder, taking the life of a fellow human being. Um, you know, your, your property crimes and your uh, white collar crimes, your public corruption crimes are all very important, but you know, murder is different. In fact, the Supreme Court has said death is different. They said it in the context wow. of uh, death penalty litigation. But here was my experience. For 22 of my 30 years, I was dealing with murder cases in Washington, D.C. The majority of the people I prosecuted were impulsive kids with guns. Now, when I say kids, because I'm in my 60s, maybe anybody who is 18 to 35 qualifies mm. as a kid, and I yell at them to get off my lawn. Um, <laughs> but they really, so many of the young men who killed were the kind of kids who were basically raised by the streets, maybe turned out by their, their mom. Often it was a single parent household and often the mother would struggle with maybe addiction problems, mental health problems, employment problems, housing problems, mm -hmm. and the streets would raise the kids. So what would happen was they would gravitate toward the gangs, the street crews. And in DC, at last count, we had like 150 or, or 200 discrete gangs or street crews, generally geographically based. And the only positive reinforcement wow. these young men got was from fellow crew members. You know, you're a lookout real good, or you're a, a runner real good. You re-up the stash real good. You bring me my gun real good. Um, and and it, it, you know what? Any reinforcement feels good to a young man who has had no positive reinforcement. Now, mm -hmm. it's positive reinforcement for doing wrong, Right. But it's still positive reinforcement and people seek community and the street crews and the street gangs give people that sense of 
community, even if it's in the setting of selling drugs, running guns, you know, burglarizing homes, jacking cars, what have you. And then once some of these young men get their hands on guns, they don't have the impulse control or the tools to deal with that, the power of that weapon responsibly. And Dash, I've had so many murders wow. committed over, you know, you bumped into my girlfriend at the club. You stole my drug stash. You came through our gang territory and didn't show us the proper respect. And they pull guns and they start firing and they take lives. So many of these, you know, young men are, are lost to the streets very early on. Now, I also got to work with so many of them as cooperating witnesses, because if you have a gang member or you have a co-defendant homicide case, well, it was often my goal to turn one of them into a cooperating witness, have them plead guilty, take responsibility for their piece of the crime and testify about the other perpetrators. And I got to spend so much time, often in jail cells or in secure rooms in the basement of the DC US Attorney's Office where we brought inmates and I would work with them to prepare them as witnesses in my case, but also I think to help prepare them for life on the outside once they're released. And I learned so much from these young men. It was almost always men. I prosecuted some women who were homicide defendants as well. And I have to tell you, my overwhelming sense is I wish I or somebody could have taken these young people under my wing when they were growing up rather than having them raised by the streets so they could have experienced another way of life and maybe made different choices. So, I mean, I try to lead with empathy in all things. And that is the way I viewed the people I prosecuted. Then now there were some mm -hmm. evil dudes out there too. <laughs> I mean, people who really like to hurt others. I did stare into the eyes of evil plenty of times but that was the minority of the cases. Wow. So I, that, that, that's my belief too, that, that we're born good and that perhaps culture and society and our upbringing can drive people into madness. So that I'm, I'm, I'm actually shocked, but I'm still shocked that, that I, I thought that, that, that surprises me to be honest, that, and it, you have empathy and compassion. And it's funny as a, as a prosecutor, you, you do need to step into the minds of, of the mind of evil to kind of understand it. And is that how you, so a lot of your cases involved flipping them. That's interesting to me too. So you, was that to get to head honcho? Is that how you yeah. use them as pawns to get to the head of the, and were these gangs that you were prosecuting most, yeah, of, the, I did, most of the time? I did RICO prosecutions in federal court, uh, participated in the uh, prosecutions of the largest RICO organization to ever run the streets of Washington, D.C. They committed 30 murders over the course of 10 years. They ran the drug trade. Um, and the Washington Post, my friend Carol Lenig back in the day, was covering the, the D.C. federal court crime beat. So she and I would spar a little bit. Now we're fast friends, and she's doing remarkable work covering the Trump former Trump administration, the insurrection, and, and whatnot. Um, but the Washington Post, when we were prosecuting this particular RICO organization, dubbed them Murder Inc., Murder Incorporated, for all of the people they had killed. And yeah, the goal was always wow. to, flip, to flip the lower fish against the bigger fish and work your way up the criminal chain. 
Um, and I, I don't say this because it's, I'm bragging. It is actually an insult, not a compliment. My colleagues used to call me king of the cooperators. And that <laughs> wasn't a compliment because cooperating witnesses are notoriously difficult to work with. Because think about it, somebody who has perhaps chosen a life of crime, yeah. taken, you know, taken lives, run guns, sold drugs, you now have to work with them and impress upon them that if they're going to cooperate, if I'm ever going to put you on the stand, you have to tell the whole truth, the good, the mm -hmm. bad, and the ugly about your crimes, most importantly, because if you won't fess up to your own crimes, I can't sponsor your testimony against others about their crimes. And then you have to testify truthfully about the crimes of others. And, you know, I, I used to tell people, you need to tell me the whole truth if this relationship, prosecutor and cooperator, is going to work. Because if you tell me even a tiny little lie, a lie that you think right. might help my case and make the guy I'm prosecuting look even more guilty. You tell one little lie and we are done. And then I become your worst enemy because I go into court at the time of your sentencing and I say, judge, he lied to us and he, he tried to frame somebody or he lied to us and he tried to minimize the guilt of somebody. That's poison to a, to a cooperator. That would that jeopardize the case as well if they lie. So what I'm asking too is, do you kind of have to make a a handshake with the defendant or the cooperating witness and just on good faith hope that they tell the truth? It's not it's good simple, faith. It's I mean it's called corroboration. corroboration. So if a cooperating witness tells me something, I will corroborate it every way I can with you know, the easy ways to corroborate text messages, emails, social medias, DMs, uh, phone calls, uh, phone records, um, surveillance video, covert recordings that we will sometimes make with cooperating witnesses mm -hmm. when their cooperation has not become public. We will get them to place recorded covert calls to their criminal associates. And that's some of the best evidence we get. And importantly, uh -huh the testimony of others. So a cooperating witness can tell you, yeah, I saw Joe shoot that dude. Well, I'm going to need other witnesses to provide information that corroborates, supports, reinforces the cooperating witnesses account. We don't do anything on a handshake and blind trust. Um, okay. You've got to corroborate what they tell you. Okay. Wow. That, that, that's, that's, Mind and thank you for, for thank you for asking me about stuff other than the legal issues of the day. It's kind of it takes me back to my time as a prosecutor, which, uh, to be honest, I miss every day. And I long sometimes to go back to the really? Department of Justice and be working shoulder to shoulder with my friends and my former homicide prosecutors who are handling the insurrection case. Wow. Yeah, because I was actually I was just going to ask you because um, you worked for 24 four years, correct me if I'm wrong, from 94 to 2018. And I was wondering, how does a justice warrior like you walk away from, from prosecuting the baddest criminals that like, even my, that's my like little boy dream. I always sometimes wish I was the head of the chief homicide. So yeah. Was there a moment where you're like, I just can't take this anymore. You know, I never lost the, um, the appetite for prosecuting cases. You know, there's, there's something 
sort of uniquely satisfying about being a homicide prosecutor, at least for me, because one, you get to help families mm. who lost a loved one as a result of violent crime. You get to help them through the most, what is mo often the most difficult ordeal of their lives. Not only do you have a loved one taken from your family, suddenly you're now injected into police investigations and grand jury proceedings and trials and sentencing, probation, parole. And you're just trying to get through the day as a family and move in the direction of healing. Mm -hmm. um, so I got to do that, help those families through the process. And it's often a multi-year process. Wow. And I also got to try cases. I got to craft the case and stand up in court and talk to 12 people in a jury box who sit as the conscience of the community and try to persuade them of the righteousness of my case, of the quality and quantity of my evidence. And, you know, getting 12 people to unanimously decide to hold a fellow member of their jurisdiction, their community accountable for murder, try to get 12 people to unanimously agree to anything, where to have lunch, it's a challenge. <laughs> Wow. But there's something about the challenge of it and the performance of it. You know, I can be a ham um, that yeah. it, it just appealed to me. And it's a great question. How could I walk away from it? You know, I did it for 30 years and I, I actually I think maybe once was asked by the Department of Justice, what we call main justice, you know, the building in mm -hmm. which the bureaucrats dwell. I was at the U.S. attorney's office, which was just a few blocks away. We were the ones trying the cases, as are the other 92 U.S. attorney's offices around the country. That's mm -hmm. where the trials uh, take place, as opposed to main justice. I call it the land of the bureaucrats, jokingly. I mean, there's a <laughs> lot of hard work that gets done at the Department of Justice, main justice. I think once, Dash, I was invited to come over and apply for a bureaucratic job. And I said, not only am I not going to apply for it, I'm not going to walk the six blocks from my office <laughs> over to Maine Justice because I have no interest in doing anything other than what I'm doing. I love it. It gives me great job satisfaction. I feel like it's valuable. I'm also aggressively protecting the rights of every defendant that I prosecute to make sure if we're going to do it, we do it right in accordance with the law and the Constitution. I've had to prosecute police officers when they did wrong. I had to dismiss oh cases God. when the police did wrong. So it, for me, it was like a win, win, win. It, it gave me everything I wanted professionally. But after 30 years, I had enough age to retire from the department. Mm -hmm. I had enough years in service to retire from the department. My wife and I sat down and we're like, okay, I love this. Do I do it for another five, 10, 15 right. years? Or do I try to step out of government and contribute to this justice fight in a different way? Um, mm -hmm. And it was not an easy decision, but I decided to try to contribute in a different way. Well, now I think you're that you're you're doing great work uh, informing people about the current crimes that that were that we've seen just as the lay person, especially in politics. And so I guess this perhaps maybe bring me to my my next question here as as your experience as a prosecutor. Do you think there's with enough money, enough power, that there are certain corporations and public individuals who are above the rule of law. It's just, yeah, it's just for a quick example, I just want to give to, aside from, you know, the, the current political space, there are corporations like DuPont, where you know, they, 
I have to say they allegedly poisoned the water in West Virginia and it's led to cancer, but they're still in litigation for, for the past decade. And then there's Purdue Pharma who spurred the OxyContin crisis and Richard Sackler faced no prosecutions. They only got civil lawsuits, but they're just so insulated by their company and they have so much power in the, the tactics of delay and appeal that are we, is this, is, are there some people who are truly above the law in America? And it pains me to ask it. Yeah, I think the ideal is that no person is above the law. I don't think that's the reality in the American criminal justice system. Um, and it pains me to say that. But, you know, if we, when I say we, I lapse into when I talk about federal prosecutors, I say we because it's just in my DNA. You know, if it, wake me up in the middle of the night, shake me awake and ask me, what are you? I would probably still say, well, I'm a prosecutor. I'm a, oh, wait, no, no, I'm not anymore. So I, I don't mean to use the royal we, um, but prosecutors don't do a good job of holding accountable the ruling class criminals. Right. And the ruling class criminals can be found in politics, in business, in entertainment, and the ruling class criminals have gotten away with too much for too long. I wish I had it in my DNA to run for office. I don't. But if I did, I would, I would run on a one plank platform. I would kick the hell out of every ruling class criminal. And when I say kick the hell, I'm talking figuratively using the rule of law, not physically even yeah. though I grew up as a boxer and a football player and a wrestler, which is what my pop was. So, wow. you know, I always kind of, when I get angry at injustice, it, it's, it's more than just sort of a polite anger and let's talk about it. But, you know, I can't, I can't hit anybody anymore because mm -hmm. I don't step into the boxing ring anymore. I would, kick the, I would kick the hell out of every ruling class criminal because these are the people who do such wide ranging damage yeah. to our nation, mm -hmm. to our equality, and I mean economic equality, I mean racial equality, I mean orientation equality, I mean equality in all things, not to mention they bang us up pretty good on the environmental justice front. And these are people yes. who are never held accountable because they buy their way out of it. When I say they buy their way out of it, I don't mean they necessarily bribe their way out of it, but they have the resources to either intimidate the federal government into being hands off or to pay fines and penalties and back taxes. And that to me is buying your way out of it if you have engaged in criminal activity. I'll tell you, I would, I would, I would look to create a sea change in the way we do criminal justice because. You don't need weed offenders taking up prison space. You don't need nonviolent drug offenders, not just right. marijuana, taking up prison space. You need ruling class criminals to be held accountable, to be put in prison, because that's the only way to deter tomorrow's ruling class criminal. The principle applies squarely to Donald Trump. If you don't hold a criminal president accountable, the next president is more likely to commit crime. This is not yeah. rocket science. This is just common sense and good law enforcement. So yes, are there some people that are above the law? You're damn right there are.
It's it hurts to hear it from you, but it's, it's exactly what we see right now. And by the way, what you're saying, yes, that these corporations and these politicians, they're responsible for the people in jail, the policies they create, the corporations that create these products that kill people and drive people off the brink, even, you know, big pharma, it's the same scenario where the addicts face the consequences of the corporations. So when you talk, I've heard you talk a lot about the term probable cause. And I've heard you say quite a lot that the Department of Justice has had probable Mm -hmm. cause to seek an indictment since the Mueller report. Um, And if you can maybe quickly explain the Mueller report to some of our our audience, but Mm -hmm. really is probable cause just does that, or does that mean the Department of Justice or whoever's prosecuting is duty-bound by law to begin an indictment, or is it just a code that they're supposed to follow? Probable cause is an evidentiary standard, and the first thing I did when I was made chief of homicide by then U.S. Attorney Ken Weinstein was I studied everything I could get my hands on regarding what probable cause means because you can't put no court has ever put a number on it now let me i'll do a quick tutorial on evidentiary burdens of proof and what they mean so we all know that to convict somebody of a crime at a criminal trial you need proof beyond a reasonable doubt now no court has said that means 98 percent of the evidence must prove guilt because let's face it you can't plug evidence into a calculator or a mathematical (laughs) you know uh formulation you can't do it but Beyond a reasonable doubt, I would say it's got to be 95, 97, 98% of the evidence proves guilt. You have to exclude all possibilities of innocence, right? That's the granddaddy of all evidentiary burdens of proof. But in the law, there are a whole bunch of lesser burdens of proof. For example, to have a jury find your way in a civil case, it's just a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, 51%. That's all that's at stake in a civil case because a civil case is just about money, right? Mm -hmm. So um, then if you go down below a preponderance of the evidence, 51%, you have probable cause. That is a really important evidentiary standard in the criminal law because once law enforcement authorities have enough evidence to make out probable cause that somebody committed a crime, that gives them the lawful authority to lock them up or to indict them. Now, what happens when you get, when you are investigating a crime and you get to that probable cause level, which I will say, and academics might not like the fact that I say this, the person who decides whether there's probable cause ultimately is a judge. Because as a prosecutor, I can investigate and say, I assess that we now have probable cause to arrest someone. I have to put all of the evidence with my FBI agent or my homicide detective in a sworn affidavit and then present that to a judge. And the judge decides yay or nay on the probable cause question. So ultimately it's up to the judge. So the best thing I ever read about what probable cause means was a nationwide survey of judges because they're the ones who have to make the decision. Yeah. And the judges are, and they were asked to give it a number. Give it, appellate courts will never give it a number. There's no published case that gives it a percentage of the evidence, but judges said, you know, I'm thinking it's between 42 and 44% of the evidence, an artificial exercise, I know, because evidence right, right. doesn't have numeric value. Mm-hmm. Um, 42 to 40, 
4% of the evidence, and then I will sign a warrant, an arrest warrant, because I think there's probable cause. So we know 42 to 44% is below the 51% yeah. right, of preponderance of the evidence. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Once I, if I was investigating a case, once I had probable cause, I had a decision to make. Do I arrest that person or indict that person? Because an arrest and an indictment, both of those things require probable cause. Right. Or do I keep investigating covertly before I make an arrest? And here is the problem. There's probable cause plus, 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 plus to infinity and beyond, to borrow from Buzz Lightyear, um, <laughs> it, showing that Donald Trump has committed dozens of crimes against the United States. No two ways about it. Right. But the Department of Justice has opted not to arrest or indict him yet. Here's why this bothers me. If I was a prosecutor and I decided in my investigation there was probable cause and I declined to arrest or indict somebody and that person commits another crime in the community, guess what? It's on me because I declined to act once I had probable cause. Now, there's not a perfect parallel dash between a murder investigation and what Donald Trump did to try to destroy our democracy, all the crimes he committed against the United right. States. So I can't say Merrick Garland should be doing it differently the way I would have done it as a homicide chief. But there are some important similarities, like Donald Trump continues to endanger our democracy, continues to recruit insurrectionists, perhaps hoping for a second attack on the process, and he's not being stopped. And here is the deep injustice. I was on stage with uh, uh -huh. Representative Jamie Raskin on Saturday night, and I went through the mm. same analysis. Here's the deep injustice at play in America right now as we sit here. Mm. Donald Trump incited, inspired, commanded an attack on the Capitol on January 6th, and he duped so many of his followers into believing that they should attack the Capitol because their vote had been stolen, even though it hadn't been. And his followers, his foot soldiers who listen to his commands and attack the Capitol are going to prison every day. And the person who ordered the attack has a tea time tomorrow morning. That is a deep injustice at play in our nation right now that needs to be remedied. Not that they shouldn't be held accountable for attacking the Capitol, sure. but the person who gave the command to attack needs to be held accountable. And I think that should happen now. I think it already should have happened because as it doesn't, as accountability fails to come for Donald Trump day after day after day, and he golfs and he holds his hate rallies and he goes to his dinner parties and he holds his fundraisers, the respect for the rule of law erodes. And we can't afford to, to, to having the respect for the rule of law erode any more than it already has. Wow. I, I, it's funny from, from my point of view, as a lay person, my respect for the rule of law with regards to Donald Trump, I have zero respect. And just because like what you just said, I mean, there's, there's no two ways of looking about at, he, he has documents, classified documents at his hotel, nuclear documents that has been confirmed that in itself is correct me if I'm wrong espionage that is the very definition of mishandling classified documents so well according to what you're saying glenn if they have probable cause and they are not indicting him 
this is a deliberate decision by main justice to not prosecute him. And I think a question I've always wanted to ask you that nobody asks you, is it possible that Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice have already decided, you know, we're going to put on this show of this investigation. We're going to arrest some of the the henchmen, but we are not going to go down, take down Donald Trump because simply it's too political or perhaps even worse, Donald Trump and them, like you said, they, they've bought their way out of this. That's, just, that's how it looks from my point of view. And I think that's a reasonable way for people to interpret the, the data that we all see. Is it possible they've made the decision not to prosecute Donald Trump? Metaphysically, anything's possible, right? <laughs> Do I believe they will never indict Donald Trump? No, I believe they will indict Donald Trump. Here's the thing. Once you have probable cause, there are often times when it's appropriate to continue to build the case in the grand jury. And federal prosecutors are notorious for wanting to build criminal cases in the grand jury to perfection so they can't lose. So they're bulletproof when they go to trial. Well, I got news for my fellow federal prosecutors. Ain't no such thing as a bulletproof case. You have to make the decision every day. Am I doing the right thing by public safety and by our democracy by declining to act on the evidence I have and continuing to build covertly in the grand jury? Or am I doing the wrong thing? They are trying to build the perfect beast in what is the highest stakes prosecution that may ever be brought in our nation, the prosecution of a former criminal president. So I understand why they're following the path they're following. I will readily admit I would follow a different path because of the because of what I learned in my 30 years as a prosecutor and because of the damage I've seen Donald Trump do to our nation and continue to do to our nation. Um, but I believe they're trying to build wow. the perfect case and that they will ultimately indict not only all of Donald Trump's lackeys, lapdogs, criminal associates and co-conspirators, but Donald Trump himself. Well, that's reassuring to me. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm like you, but I think a little more cynical because I have no experience. I will, it's like, we have to wait and see if it happens, but while we're waiting, thing, bad things are happening to people, to good people. And uh, our, our democracy is very at stake here. So one, one thing about this, you actually, you just reminded me of something I wanted to bring up with you. Why would you, because we've heard about main justice denying, they don't want to prosecute perhaps the heads of corporations, or like, even you said, you don't like, it's not, it's never good to get a call from main justice when you're out on the field. (laughs) I've heard that. And why would there ever be a case that you, even in the case of a a murder case, why would you ever turn it down to prosecute? Because I know you prosecuted over 50, but why was there ever, I'm sure you investigated thousands and you had to turn some down. What, what would make you turn down a, a case of crime? If there was inadequate evidence to proceed the trial. So we've talked about probable cause being the yep. standard to arrest and indict, but there is an enormous chasm between probable cause and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The Department of Justice has a manual, the U.S. Attorney's Manual. It's our practice Bible, right? It tells us the do's and don'ts of federal prosecution. So whereas we can arrest and indict somebody on probable cause, we can only proceed to trial if we believe we have a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. 
how in the world you define and implement <laughs> that is anybody's guess. That is the standard, reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. Put in another way, we have to have enough evidence to sustain or to, uh, um, to obtain a conviction and sustain it on appeal. These are the buzzwords and phrases yeah. and, and policies that we live by as federal prosecutors. Sometimes you might have probable cause, but you know, let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. I have an eyewitness who identified, maybe I only have one eyewitness in a murder case and it's a strong eyewitness and he identifies the killer and I indict the person. And then that witness dies prior to trial of natural causes. I've had that happen. I've also had witnesses murdered because they were cooperating with our investigation and prosecution. Well, then I still have probable cause, but I don't have a case I can prove because I don't have a living witness who can be cross-examined because you can't put on evidence of hearsay at a trial for the most part. There are exceptions unless the witness is present and the defendant's right to confront and cross-examine the witness at trial under the Sixth Amendment can be satisfied. That is just one example. There are a thousand variations on the theme of why we might have probable cause, but we can't make it to trial for any number of reasons. You had a, I'm sorry, that's just, you had a witness who was murdered in the middle of your case? <laughs> not just a witness. Yeah, not just a witness. Um, when people ask me what's the worst thing about being a homicide prosecutor, dead witnesses. Because it, 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 it impends your case, but also what it, you've also gotten to know them as well. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, far worse for obviously the person who's been killed and their family and their community. But boy, it's, it's, it weighs on prosecutors if you lose a witness. And, and what I will say is the federal government, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Attorney's offices have lots and lots and lots of very good, robust witness protection programs. And we like it never to get to that point. But what I learned over my time as a homicide prosecutor is you can't protect witnesses against their own decisions, their own bad decisions. I've had witnesses oh. that we moved out of the danger zone. We got them to a safe location. And eventually they wandered back to their old neighborhood thinking I can squash the beef with my friends and they get killed. So again, that's just one example. I've had a number of witnesses killed over the years. My goodness. So what's, in, what's, what's tragic about this whole thing is that it, it forces these witnesses who are, are going to testify, they have to put their lives on the line to put criminals behind bars really for no paycheck, for, for no really meager protection, but just out of justice. So yeah. the, big, the big burden is on, on, seems like good people to prove bad people wrong. And I think it, maybe that was set up in a way so that maybe bad, bad it's, it's okay to have some criminals walk away free, but it's never good to have an innocent man thrown in prison. Yeah. And it's funny you say they do it for free. And yes, most people are driven either by a sense of civic duty and they cooperate with our investigations and they testify at trials or some of them are cooperators. They get jammed up and they're looking for a benefit. So we cut oh. them a deal and we sponsor their testimony. And it's funny when you say they do it for free. Once we provide witness protection services, maybe I'll move a whole family out of Washington, D.C. and put them in another state, another location where they're safe, we have to disclose to the defense attorney every penny we paid to facilitate their safety. Why? Because that's a benefit to the witness. When you say they do it for free, the defense attorneys cross-examine the witnesses and say, 
you're lying. You're lying because you wanted that government cheese. You wanted to be moved out of Washington, D.C. and put up in a hotel and be paid a stipend for your food. Now, I am not criticizing oh defense attorneys. This is a tried and true cross-examination for bias because they're, they are getting something out of it. I didn't and know sometimes, that. sometimes the cross-examination is very successful and compelling in planting a seed of doubt in the minds of the jurors. Well, maybe they did lie about seeing this murder because they wanted to be moved out of the district and put up in a hotel and be given a food oh stipend. My. Then it's my job to come back on redirect examination and say, let's talk about how your life has been upended. Did you really do that because you wanted to stay in a Motel 6 in, you know, Ohio? Right. So yeah. this is this is the it's a game. And I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of it. It's a game. You play by the rules. The stakes are high. But this is the ebb and flow of a trial, which I was just reminded of. You can tell I missed the courtroom when you said they do it for free. You know? Yeah. That was. Wow. So I accidentally. I, but that's another way. Wow. Look, at you can see how a perhaps low income maybe poor people it's easy to to pin them and saying hey they're trying to get government cheese i i never thought about that and boy just the hurdles to prosecute people um i, I speaking of just this me looking out on these cases from from the outside um it's it's we're in this new era of social media where where these cases are being made transparent now. Do you think that's a good thing for justice or were we always meant to be kept out of the loop and for people, professionals like you to remain in a sealed courtroom until the case transparency, is over? Transparency should be the default in all things governmental. So let me, let me talk about secrecy versus transparency because it's a great question. First of all, trials are public by law and by the constitution. You can't close a courtroom to the public. If you do, you're running the risk of that case being reversed on appeal. Some very, very, very few exceptions for national security, but trials have to be open to the public. Grand jury proceedings are secret by law. Nobody knows what goes on inside the grand jury. There are a lot of really important reasons for that, but it also um, gives bad prosecutors the opportunity to abuse the, the process, like we saw in the Breonna Taylor case. And oh. that is a whole nother discussion. But, but I actually think our federal government has overplayed the need for secrecy in so many arenas, not in the national security arena, not necessarily in the grand jury arena, because you have witnesses going into the grand jury. Nobody is supposed to know about that because nobody should know what we're investigating, who we're investigating, who the witnesses are, because then they might be at risk. And importantly, if we opt not to charge somebody, you don't want the community knowing, yeah, you know what, they were investigating John Smith in the grand jury, so he's probably cruddy. Well, we protect the target, John Smith's reputation, unless mm -hmm. and until we get enough evidence to bring a public charge. Lots of good reasons for grand jury secrecy, but it's subject to abuse. So I think we should strike a better balance and say, listen, there are times when the grand jury proceedings will need to be subject to review and scrutiny and daylight, and judges should have the authority to open them up after the fact if there's a public need for transparency. Transparency, you know, they say what? Sunlight is yeah. the best disinfectant. Transparency in government would really go a long way to help building confidence in our government officials and our institutions. Yeah. I think that's something that's missing right now is the confidence 
and the it, and it's because we're in this era where we see everything that's going on but there's a veil of transparency where it's not really transparent we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes with with any of this this criminal justice um so i guess glenn you know maybe i'd i'd like to 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 close here and just br- bring it back to to me this this whole prosecution of donald trump and this whole it's it's quite exhausting politics mm-hmm. has become quite nauseating and it's because there is a man who broke the law in plain sight on January 6th. Forget about the other crimes. And, and, and no consequences have, have been done or, or been placed onto him. Do, don't you think th- this has a traumatic effect, not just politically, but, hey, how about to the other criminals or people with money? Like you were saying, there's no more deterrence where it's like, all right, if I align with Donald Trump or I align with the, the higher ups, I can get away with some financial fraud. I can get away with crimes and I can use this case as a precedent or a precedent, right? This is a terrible precedent being set for our justice system. And this, this has serious implications beyond politics, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, anxiety kills. And we have uh, a population that I believe is filled with anxiety because they see crimes being committed against the United States. Um, that have gone completely unpunished for years, dating back to 2016, when Donald Trump stole the presidency by enlisting Russia's assistance and by committing campaign finance crimes in a conspiracy with Michael Cohen. He robbed us of the full value of our vote. And that was only the beginning, not of Donald Trump's life in crime, because it goes back decades in New York business circles. But And he then sort of, in uninterrupted, fashion, crimed his way through his administration, hasn't been held accountable for one, for one moment of that. We're not stupid. It fills us with anxiety to see yeah. our high government officials and our business officials, our American oligarchs and the rest of them get away with crime in the harsh light of day. It fills us with anxiety. Anxiety kills. I wish the government, I wish our federal authorities would understand that and would do something to signal these people are going to be held accountable. There's no explanation, Dash, for why there have been none of the suits of the insurrection, or the boots of the insurrection, the, the people who were duped into attacking the Capitol. The boots are going to prison. The suits are playing golf and holding dinner parties. That's insane. And that fills yeah. us with dread and anxiety and depression and desperation. And those things kill people. So I wow, don't understand yeah. why. We don't have the John Eastmans, the Rudy Giuliani's, the Mark Meadows, the, um, right. the, the Jeffrey Clarks, Clark. a high government official who joined Donald Trump's conspiracy to overthrow the... Why have they not been arrested, indicted, charged, prosecuted? That, there's no good answer to that. <laughs> there might be an answer, but it may be one we're not ready for. <laughs> but uh, Glenn... I wish someone like you w- was still the, the perhaps the attorney. You wish you were the attorney general, man. We, we need a pit bull justice warrior. And that's why I love your work. Justice matters, your show, your podcast. You continue to provide us with facts and you don't cut around. You don't, there's no bullshit on your show, straight facts. And it's time to bring some justice to these criminals. And I believe we're going to get there. You know, it's taking too long. Yes. Democracy hangs in the balance. Yes. I still, I still think we're going to get there. I can't conceive of an America or of a Department of Justice that gives it all the way to Donald Trump by not prosecuting him and letting Ron DeSantis or whomever 
do it all over again to us. I cannot conceive of that. It's not going to happen, Glenn. <laughs> all righty. Well, Glenn, thank you. Uh, you give me hope, but you've also painted a clear picture of what's going on here. And um, keep up your fantastic work on MSNBC and letting people know. And keep barking. Keep barking at these, these federal bureaucrats. Get them to do something. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dash. Great talking with you. Yeah, you as well. Take care. All right. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the show. Help spread the word about uncovering the truth by giving us a five-star review and sharing the show with a friend. We're available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and as always, I will continue to uncover the truth. The Uncovering the Truth theme song was created and produced by Pokari.